Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Urban legends, Wendy. Mmm... In a lot of cases, that's where it all begins, the yes, weirdness. it is. A lot of the weirdness comes from getting like hearing some kind of story. And the fun thing about urban legends is that most of the time, you think it actually happened in your town. Right. You know, that you think yeah. it's specific to your area. You, and that's what always got me, even when you'd hear something ridiculous. You know, <laughs> you know you'd be like, oh, yeah, that might have happened in our town. And, you know, Allison was always trying to inflict different urban legends on me. Ooh, like, to scare you? Well, I told, yeah, I, I told you about this one one time, <laughs> didn't I? That I was like maybe five years old. Oh we were my coming gosh. home from a night, going out to eat, and I thought I saw uh, somebody standing in the living room. And we'd come to my parents' house. Um, it's all, you know, there's a second floor, and it's all huge windows on the second floor where you can see inside the living room and the whole deal. And so I'm like, oh, is there somebody standing in the living room? And my mom's like, no, that's nothing. And Allison's like, oh, that's. Th- that's the farmer. I'm like, what farmer? And she goes, the farmer who used to live in our house before we lived in the house. Oh, no. He killed his family and then himself. No. And sometimes you can still see him. In the, and she's like 12. She's like 12 and she's doing this until I'm crying and I don't want to go in. I am weeping and I'm like, oh God, I'm not going in. And my mother's like, there is no farmer. My dad's like, I built the damn house. Uh, there was no one else living here before us <laughs> right he's like there's nobody here no farmer killed anybody allison go to your room mike get inside the house um well i gotta give it to allison for the creativity on that one yeah. no <laughs> i mean you started it right. what do you think you actually saw i probably just saw a shadow of something or you know how when a shadow uh, person it might have been my first shadow person could have been that night. But usually, you know, when car lights come up the driveway. Yeah. Um, like shadows just go off of weird things. The shadow could have come off a lamp and I could have seen the shadow of the lamp against That's true. the wall. And I've been like, yeah. oh my God, it's a person. And then all my mom had to say was, no, it's not a person. You just saw a weird shadow. And I've been like, okay, that's fine. But then my sister's got to double down. <laughs> I'm the murderous farmer that lives in our living room. She started an original Big Bend urban legend right in your yes. very own home. But that was fun, though. Like, you know, when we're talking today. <laughs> oh, it was uh, fun. To, well, it's fun. Now I laugh at it and stuff. And, uh, but we're talking today to Josh uh, Zeman, who made this uh, really great movie called Cropsy. And we're going to talk to Josh in a little bit. And that was about an urban legend in his own town where he grew up in Staten Island, New York. And so the fun part is, is that he went out and investigated the urban legend and he found the kernel of truth behind it. And that really launched a different, a new kind of career for him where he was producing films and stuff. Now he became like a true crime documentary filmmaker. And we're going to get into that in a minute because Josh is a really fun interview and an interesting person. But I tell you, uh, we used to try to investigate the urban legends in our own town all the time. <laughs> so once I, found, once I found out that the farmer was a fake, it was a fraud, my sister made him up, then it was like, well, what are the urban legends of our town? Yeah. 
What? And so growing up near, uh, growing up near Milwaukee, a burb like, you know, 10 miles southeast or whatever of the city, there's a place called McQuanago, Wisconsin, real swing in town, McQuanago, Wisconsin. All right. And there we had uh, a couple of different older buildings. One was the uh, Heaven City Restaurant. And the urban legend there was that it used to be a brothel. Visited by Al Capone, as Al Capone visited every brothel. He, he every... did so much traveling during his day, especially yeah. around Illinois and Wisconsin. I mean, Al Capone visited basically every restaurant, hotel, <laughs> and other yeah. venue in this whole Midwest. Anyway. He was the Anthony Bourdain of the 1920s. Oh. Uh, right, just going place to place and visiting, trying the food and the hookers and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but the brothel. So there's a place that was a brothel. Then it became a religious commune, and that, and then it became a restaurant. It was closed down for a while. And became a restaurant after that. And the urban legend about it was that it was haunted by spirits like uh, this child of one of the prostitutes. Who, um, well, she got an offer to go out of town for the weekend from this rich mobster. And she had left her son in one of the closets there because she hit him because she, no. she didn't want the John to know, the mobster to know that she had a child. So she hid the child and then went away for the weekend with him and just thought that somebody else would let him out. What? And nobody Seriously? ever let him out. Yeah, that's the, that's the legend. Yeah. I didn't say yeah, it was yeah, fact. No, I know. But, okay. but, but that was the rumor. And whether or not, uh, whatever, there was some kind of uh, truth associated with that particular aspect of it, uh, people did see the ghost of a boy uh, often standing on, or sorry, sitting on the bottom of the staircase and laughing at people coming by. It was just like a little boy dressed in 1930s clothing, laughing at people coming by. And people also, women, um, said that sometimes they'd be in the bathroom and they wouldn't be able to open the door to get out of the stall. And they'd feel like somebody was holding the door on them. And then they finally broke out. And w- when they left, they would see the little boy sitting in the staircase. Oh, that's terrifying. Plus, being stuck in a public bathroom stall is scary enough in and of itself. Right. Right. <laughs> and so people, uh, people having this experience of seeing this, you know, this, this little boy and ghost stuff, eventually the legend came out of it that it was the son of a prostitute who was there. But the truth behind it is it was a commune, like a free love commune. Hmm. Um, like back in the 50s and 60s and that's why they gave it that name Heaven City <laughs> of the restaurant was because it was that, that commune it was a religious free love commune back in the 50s and 60s so there was a kernel of truth associated with it and then there was the haunting of the Rainbow Springs Hotel and this was a hotel that was built and never actually uh, was open to the public whole hotel was built huge place and, too yeah and the only thing that was ever used uh, was parts of the hotel were used for a haunted house by the McQuanago JCs at Halloween time. So none of the rest of it was ever used. I mean, you could still see uh, the the cable the ca- for you know for the uh, closed circuit television, the cable television, like out like sticking out of the walls. Wow! Um, and everything, and the, everything was built. Even had brochures for the place and stuff, and people would sneak in and out of this Rainbow Springs Hotel because. But, you know, they would hear a rumor that it was haunted. And it's because the, the person who was going to build the hotel killed themselves inside the hotel. And that was true. Like, that was that. That's you can wow. write in the late 60s. The guy lost his financing for the last little bit to open the hotel. And then he killed himself in there. Oh, my goodness. So then it becomes a rumor of a haunted place. And people start having weird experiences there. 
um, and then it's a place you investigate. Mm-hmm. And you know, those are two pretty, um, I wouldn't say generic, but they're pretty general kind of things. Like you can have a, you can have an abandoned hotel or an old restaurant slash brothel in almost any town, but not every town has the haunchies. Haunchyville. <laughs> now this is, the Haunchyville is, is one of the most ridiculous. And Linda Godfrey, our friend Linda Godfrey, uh, she talks about the haunchies in her book, Monsters of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and gets in there, and they're in Muskego, Wisconsin, which is about five minutes away from where I grew up in Big Bend. Yeah, so you have personal and experience, don't you, Mike? Absolutely. I have not met any haunchies. But you explored Haunchyville. But I have gone to Haunchyville. Absolutely, I did. And uh, I'd never really heard of it growing up, but then one of my friends worked at a, sup- worked at a Williams Supper Club in Muskego, and they talked about Haunchyville as they were washing dishes. And so um, the haunchies were a bunch of angry little people <laughs> who lived in uh, small houses off of Mystic Road. And it's the same thing as we talked about uh, in Cincinnati and that we talked to our friend Vic in Austin about that he grew up with that midget mansion yeah, yeah. in uh, San, Antonio. San Antonio, Texas, is that the haunchies were either a colony of people with dwarfism or... Uh, former circus performers. And as former circus performers, they're angry um, about, you know, feeling that... Exploited, basically. Yeah, being exploited and that non-vertically challenged people made fun of them their entire lives and so they hated them. And so they went off to live in their own colony. And one of these colonies was supposedly off Mystic Road, which perfectly named Mystic Road. Yeah, that's great. Uh, in Muskego. And... It's on Cincinnati. It's called Tiny Town. Uh, So there's always some kind of cutesy name associated with it, too. Haunchyville. But we, you know, we had our own rumor about it. And then what would happen is you go down Mystic Road and you would supposedly see buildings that looked small, like they were built for little people, not built for, you know, five to six and a half foot people, regular. And that, you know, they lived in miniature buildings. And they constructed elaborate underground tunnels beneath Haunchyville so they could get away just in case the police came looking for them. <laughs> and, I know, it's so ridiculous that this whole thing. And uh, in Monsters of Wisconsin, Linda Godfrey talks about one man going down Mystic Road. And then what happens is um, people find him the next day uh, burnt on the side of a barn down Mystic Road. And the thing is, there were all these little footprints surrounding the body. Was that's how the story goes? So you know, they found a burned body of somebody who went down Mystic Road, never to return. Uh, you know, set on fire, and then they're just little footprints. And that's a perfect story them. because it leaves just enough to the imagination to make it extra creepy. Because you know, you figure, you just picture these little creatures like doing a victory dance after, <laughs> like right. ending this man's life. Um, there was a recent issue of milwaukee magazine the may issue that uh two of our fabulous patreons actually brought to my attention wayne and marcia oh, thank you for that um yeah thank but there you, were, wayne and marcia for being part of the community yeah they had a whole issue that that featured an article on unsolved mysteries and hidden history of milwaukee and there was a bit about the haunchies and haunchy villain there and i was surprised to learn that part of the legend includes the area being watched over by a full-sized gun-toting albino man so that was something new oh. that I hadn't heard before. Although I've heard many, many things about yeah. Haunchyville. So <laughs> just another. I heard he might shoot at you, like or shoot a warning shot. Oh, okay. If you get too close to Haunchyville. Yeah. 
And then if you get any farther, the haunches attack you with baseball bats. Oh my gosh. Or what they'll do to you is they'll cut you off at the knees with axes to come down to size. They'll cut you down to size. Why are they called the haunches? Well, the only reason I ever heard of them called the haunches is because that guy whose body's burned at the side of the road, there was a note found next to his body that said the haunches made him. Ah, oh, like they made him end his own life. Yes. Okay. So the haunches made me do it. Um, and I've been to Haunchyville. I, it's hard to... You're a frequent to tourist. Back <laughs> yeah, back in the day. You couldn't see any little houses or anything. But we did freak ourselves out a little bit. And this isn't even when I was like 15. This is like when I was 21. Like, dude, we did freak ourselves out a little bit because I heard like a weird like pterodactyl noise. It was Ooh. like a, And I ran. <laughs> well, Mike... Two things. I just I I know we're going on a bit too much about Haunchyville, but I do remember you telling me about sure. it for the first time way back when in college, shortly after we met each other. And I distinctly remember you telling me that there were like stop signs on the street that were a little like lower down. Yes. Like oh my god, signs. I'm glad you remember that. I didn't even remember. <laughs> so that was like one little clue that might lead to more rumors, right? And then um, the other thing I remembered was that you said it wasn't that far from the marsh where you had your experience seeing the shadow person, right? No, I mean, less than 10 miles, le- yeah, okay. less than 10 miles away from That's not super close, but I mean, so, you know, same neighborhood. So there's weirdness going on. Yeah, in the same radius, in the same, yeah. in the same radius, like they're both, you know, five to 10 minutes away from Big Ben. Mosquito close to your home. Direction. <laughs> yes, yeah. very, very, right. Close to the home where the farmer haunts. Right. Uh, the farmer. So Haunchyville was always a classic growing up. We had, you know, we had that. We had Rainbow Springs. We had Heaven City Motel. We had a old abandoned farmhouse uh, that we used to call the Gates of Hell. And that's where people... This sounds like a lovely place. Happened. <laughs> well, it was, like, it was like burnt down. It was like a burnt down farmhouse. Uh, and you, could just, you, could all, you could just see it from the road. And it's gone now because there's like a hospital there and a Walmart and all that kind of stuff. But 20 years ago, there was nothing like in that field besides this little house behind some trees. And, you know, maybe I've told this story in the podcast before, but if I'll make it quick. Uh, we all go down to the gates of hell one night. We break out the Ouija board and start playing it. And my friend Brett... He's roaming around the place, looking around, and he goes, hey, why don't you use this as an antenna, and throws a bone <laughs> on top of the Ouija board. And I'm like, and, where the hell did you get that? Yeah, and that totally sounds like a line straight out of like a cheesy horror movie, too. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you use this as an antenna? He throws a bone. And in the walls were all these animal bones. Oh, uh, yeah. Like inside the walls, and I'm not, you know, what people did there or screwed around there or they did it just to scare well, people kind of thing. Also, the gates of hell. Animals do go in between the walls and nest and stuff like that. So it's not entirely That's true. out of question that it could just be a natural That's occurrence. That's true. But these, I mean, there was like a hundred bones inside the wall. <laughs> Yuck. It was like somebody was trying to rebuild the catacombs in France. Oh. Like, there was some weird stuff going on there. And it went to the gates of hell and uh, played the Ouija board and had fun. <laughs> not too far away was the Beast of Bray Road. That's a well-known one. Talk about Linda a lot. I mean, and that was on the news when I was starting in high school. Like the Beast of Bray Road was on the news. So you want to go there That's and cool. see if you could actually see a werewolf on Bray, you know, Bray right. Road. And so when I think about the urban legends um, that we had as a kid, uh, well, some of them came true. 
I mean, Rainbow Springs came true. The per- I mean, it didn't come true, but it was based on the truth of the of the owner killing himself inside there. And Heaven City um, was a commune, was a brothel, was a free love place and all that kind of stuff. And so it's finding that truth inside the urban legend that makes it extra exciting. Like we can share a story that we all scare each other with. But then when you go there and find out like, oh, crap, there's a reason that this story was t- written in the first place. That's what makes it really exciting. And that's what we're going to talk with Josh Zaman about. Josh, for people who are unfamiliar with your work or, or just heard you for the first time, you know, you're, you're a writer and you're a documentarian. How do you define yourself as what you do? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I guess today that, you know, you can be so many things. For me, storyteller. Okay. You know, uh, kind of, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the medium, it's it's the story, you know, and some stories can be told in a whole bunch of different mediums, uh, whether that's like screenwriting, uh, narrative films, or telling it through documentary. Okay. Well, the first time that um, I, I saw your work uh, was actually a couple of years ago, and I was looking around Hulu, and I saw Cropsey, and it looked like a cool thing, and I was taking care of my baby at the time, and she wasn't old enough to figure out what was going on, so I'm like, well, I can watch this movie then. And we ended up watching it in the middle of the night, and uh, I was pretty terrified in parts. But, um, you know, it was based on the urban legends that you heard as a kid uh, growing up on Staten Island, right? Yeah. So uh, to get a little bit of your background, you know, we always like to ask, when you're getting involved in weird stuff, the dark side of life and everything, there's usually some kind of moment, some kind of origin point, something that, uh, you know, drew you in because it's, you know, most people don't pick this kind of thing. So was there anything when you grew up, what drew you to this kind of stuff? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I just like, I guess I was always told that my hometown was so idyllic, you know, and it was, it was, everybody was always trying to put on this aura of white picket fences and beautiful suburban streets. And I think Staten Island, New York, uh, was definitely the ultimate bedroom community. Uh, Everybody from Brooklyn, Queens, everybody from the city had moved to Staten Island. I did too. Uh, And it's very interesting because all those people who moved from the big city, you know, when you grow up in the big city, if there's like an abandoned lot on your block, and you're in the city, only bad things happen in that abandonment. <laughs> you know, that's where you get beat up on your way to school. That's where people find the dead drunk or the dead body. You know, that's where, you know, somebody gets assaulted, uh, a woman gets raped, all these, you know, horrific things happen in, in these like abandoned areas in the city. When all those people moved to Staten Island, including myself, and found this huge green belt, this forested area, it suddenly became, oh, that's where all the bad things happen. But it's not a lot. It's a whole forest. And so, but then they had their white picket fences and their beautiful driveways. And so I guess I've always been attracted to showing people the other side, the underbelly. Uh, And it was definitely there in Staten Island in spades. You know, when, when you left your house and your beautiful manicured lawn and you ventured out into the woods, suddenly you found abandoned mental institutions and tunnels and things like that. So if you like spooky stories, you know, this was one that was, that had come to life. And so it was very real. And so I realized how exciting and fun and interesting that could be. And I definitely liked scaring myself as a kid. 
So, uh, you know, it was all, it was the perfect storm of, of fun factors. So when you were looking into becoming a storyteller or a filmmaker or things like that, were you somebody who was always into horror movies or true crime? Or were you like, you know what, I'm with the film school to make the next Citizen Kane. And I ended up with Citizen Cropsey. <laughs> good. Another good question. I've always like, you know, when I was a kid, I used to read Stephen King like he was going out of style. So, you know, it was always I always liked the Stephen, the Stephen King for me. That, that was it, you know. And so... I guess I've always been attracted to that. Um, it was interesting that the documentary side I kind of fell into. You know, I liked scary stories, but when I realized you could tell a scary, the, the challenge of telling a real scary story was much more interesting to me. And and that's the line you. It seems like you've you followed since. And and for people who aren't familiar with it, first of all, you can get you can watch Cropsey on Netflix. Um, and so you probably have a streaming service. Uh, Amazon. Uh, iTunes, they can go, uh, you can pretty much find it. And just a, a quick primer on it. Now, you guys grew up with an urban legend of, uh, you know, a, a killer coming out of the woods and like, you know, abducting and taking a kid and stuff. And what I think is really interesting about this is that we all had, you know, I grew up near a woods, sub, suburban Milwaukee kind of thing, like the same kind of picket fence area that you're talking about. My parents had left, you know, the city, moved out to the suburbs and stuff, and we grew up in the 70s. And then we still had the stories of, oh, yeah, well, there's, you know, something back there and everything. And everybody has that story. And this legend of Cropsey even inspires a couple of early 80s horror movies. That's right. And and so you guys, you know, you talk about this and, you know, you can look up and see these these early, you know, cheesy horror movies that are based on it. But the thing is, when you went to investigate, you found the truth behind the story. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's the interesting thing, right? You know? What comes first? Well, first of all, you know, I always think there's some basis in fact to almost any urban legend. There's some grain or kernel of truth. And so I think that's important. And it's saying like, okay, well, why did this urban legend come about? Urban legends are cautionary tales, yes. But there's obviously something more here as to why this urban legend came about. Sometimes it's some true crime, some crime that's been unsolved or some accident that happened basically like, typically some kind of event that we can't reconcile. And so the only way we can reconcile, we can understand it, especially is to kind of, especially as a child, is to add a story to it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or, or if you have a cautionary tale and you want to make it really creepy, you kind of add in a mysterious murder that has no answer. And so you, it becomes the, what if, it becomes the, could this possibly be true? And so that's, that's how it kind of all comes together. For me, you know, we had these child murders and the question was whether or not, you know, was this really Cropsey? Is this where the Cropsey legend came from? Was this a story that was being told by the community to keep their kids out of these woods because they could never prosecute the guy who they knew was doing it? You know, it's one thing for me to tell you, um, there's a pedophile in the woods, don't go there. To a kid, that doesn't really mean anything. Right. But if I tell you there's an escaped mental patient with a hook for a hand in the woods, don't go in there. That that that, that would work. And you know, it, it's funny because um, we talk about this on the show all the time. Because we talk about these different legends from different nations all across the world uh, of different monsters and everything they have, and a lot of them are particularly seem to be for some kind of how to keep kids behaving. <laughs> you know, all these urban legends, like all these monsters, like in Iceland particularly, there's a monster who'll eat you if you don't do your knitting. And it's like, wow. why would that monster do that? Well, because in Iceland, if they don't do their knitting, they're going to have a very dangerous winter. 
And so I think it's it's funny that you're talking about you know these urban legends that you grew up with, and then all of a sudden you're investigating it. You find almost a history behind it, but you know when they, when they come out, it seems that urban legends themselves they seem there's like no particular author of them. Like today we might be able to trace it to like the person that made a meme, or like you can find the guy that invented Slender Man in the original yeah. Photoshop. But when you go back to these urban legends, it seems like a, a game of telephone that goes across the culture. Well, I, I think that's also the point, meaning like if you can find the answer, then it's kind of boring. But if, you can, if, you're, if you're constantly finding yourself going down the rabbit hole like a conspiracy story and it never ends, it makes it that much interesting. It keeps it going and it keeps it going and it keeps it going. You know, Slender Man I like, but if it wasn't for the two girls, I don't necessarily know how sticky it would be per se. Um, But like when I've always like I hate it when they talk about the original guy who created Slender Man because it's like uh, then it makes it kind of boring. You know, you know, it's like, oh, there's the answer. Um, now, when if you go back and you're like, no, 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 that guy just took an amalgamation of all these other Mm -hmm you know, urban legends like the German, you know, the German urban legend, you know, then you can kind of keep going down the rabbit hole and realize, well, it's just another chapter to this big book and the chapters never end. And I think, you know, as a storyteller, uh, I'm sure you know that half the, I mean, I guess that's what they did to us in Lost was half the mystery uh, is what's exciting. And then when you get the answer, you're like, it's a cork. It's, it's a cork. You guys are killing me. Yeah. Uh, Never make sure it never ends. Um, you know, so I, I really appreciated what you did with your investigation behind the urban legend. You know, that that's something that you know we do on the show. I write haunted history tours, and uh, where for where? Uh, we do it in Minneapolis, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, some different smaller towns in Wisconsin, like Lake Geneva near Chicago, and uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin. These areas, and a lot of it is, you know, you take these urban legends that people hear. And then let's go dive in and see if there's a reason that they exist. If there, you know, right. if there's something to it, like you know, one of one of the places that I've written a history tour for is Waukesha, Wisconsin, where the Slender Man stabbing happened. Right. And so I, I think that the investigation stuff you did on Cropsey was great, and I enjoyed that. And so I immediately went to Killer Legends next. Like that was like <laughs> the next day. You know, I was like in the middle of the night when I'm feeding the kid. I'm like, hey, you want to watch? You want to see John Wayne Gacy? Um, right. So I encourage everybody to check it out. And I don't want to ruin everything by just you know talking about it because you can watch it and see it. It's a succinct uh, format. But so you guys picked, uh, you know, for Killer Legends specifically, like like four big urban legends that we all grew up with. And can you tell us what those were? Sure. Um, and and that was originally going to be a pilot for a TV show. And then the the TV show didn't happen. And so we're like, okay, well, these are, but like, you know, everybody wants to know where the urban legends came from. So we kind of released it as a standalone. Uh, we did the, uh, the babysitter, you know, who gets called from inside the house. Uh, also a stranger is calling. Um, um, did you check the children? Uh, that's, you know, one of my favorites. Um, the hook for a hand, you know, the couple making out in the car and there's a hook on the door. That's, you know, one of the most famous, um, we did, uh, poison Halloween candy. Everybody seems to like that one where poison Halloween candy came from. And at the time, the one that kind of was a little bit of an outlier was clowns, you know, where, how did clowns become creepy? 
because it's not necessarily an urban legend per se, but I thought it was an urban legend. To me, it was an urban legend, and I guess we ended up proving that. But that one, interestingly, had its own kind of life after we did that. So it's just very interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, since that's come out, I mean, it's even like the, the clown hysteria of, you know, people in Tennessee, like schools closing down because somebody reports weird clowns near the school or kids say they saw something and all of a sudden the school closes. I mean, clowns are our modern day satanic ritual abuse. Yes, it was very weird. We did the series, we did the show before any of the clown stuff happened. Um, Then, literally right after the show, there was a clown sighting in Staten Island and we had thought that maybe some kids had seen Killer Legends and there was the Staten Island connection because that's where I'm from. And they had done it for, as a viral scare for one of their horror movies. And then from there, it I think it was a conflux of things. Like it's not just because of Killer Legends. I guess it was in everybody's zeitgeist. Um, but then it just went bonkers, you know, and that was correlated to uh, – Trump and the, the, the politics of that time. It was very, it was just very strange and very weird, the whole chaos, the chaos theory. Right. Fall of 2016 was a very interesting, like, it, I'm sure there must be some kind of astrological explanation if you're into that. But like, that's like stars aligned in a very unusual way at that time. It was very bizarre. And like, I remember I was doing a podcast with a writer from Germany as the clown wave was spreading across Germany and it was intermixing with uh, some neo-Nazi stuff. It was really far-right politics, like burning of cars and shit. So it was just, it was really weird how it started to like just spread from that. I I was going to say, if you want to really double down on the terror of clowns, you add in Nazi clowns and that, all right, that's going to scare the crap out of everybody. Oh, for sure. I mean, when, you know, and then it has this weird kind of like, again, chaos, you know, the whole thing about chaos or like, you know, clowns revel in chaos. That's the whole Joker theme. I'm an agent of chaos. And then when you've got like marauding groups of people dressed in clown outfits, burning cars or marauding across the countryside, that basically like triple feeds in. And, you know, I think that's really interesting, you know, the way you're talking about that, Josh, because um, Gary Lackman, who we just had on the podcast uh, um, about a month ago, he wrote a book called Chaos Magic. And it's all about these how like occult theory in the far right, in the, like, the, you know, the, yeah. the reactionary yeah. thing and, and, and the using of this. And so the idea that clowns as agents of chaos also feeding into the whole like reactionary movement. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, that, that fits in perfectly. And so they did find a life of their own. I thought your research was the best, or I was the most like, damn, that was a good one, was on the hook. The hook. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah, that's, I mean, you found, but you found the story that we've all been waiting for since we, we were kids. Well, you know, look, and, but who knows? You know, there are, <clears throat> there are other things that we just couldn't include in there, which is the fact that that was also kind of prevalent in the late 70s, the Carol Chessman murders, a guy who would stop people make, who were making out on their cars. Uh, he actually pretended to be a cop with a red light. Um, or even Berkowitz, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, approaching people um, as they were making out in cars, you know. So it was it the Texarkana, Texas murders? It could have been for sure. You know, it was very interesting, not only... Did we have like the motif of the making out in cars? 
you know, but we also had the what that guy wore, the mask, and you can see that as a precursor to some other masks. So it's just very interesting how these stories get pulled. The other interesting thing about that, and I, I mentioned it in in the, the series, but I wish I could have mentioned it and gone even further, which is Charles B. Pierce, the director of the film um, uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. So Charles B. Pierce directs The Town That Dreaded Sundown, right? That was like the first use of like a film that really kind of broke the is this real or is this not convention. Talking about a crime that had been unsolved, saying that the killer is still lurking around, but doing it as kind of this kind of like based upon true events, but then screwing around with the events. That's the same guy who did The Legend of Bakke Creek, which is like another totally terrifying film. And the guys who did um, Blair Witch said that Charles B. Pierce was a little bit of, of, of a little bit of a kind of um, motif uh, that they were doing when they did the Blair Witch. So just the fact that, as I try to show, that the community comes out and watches this movie in the place where the killings happened, they're legend tripping, you know, and we were there, myself and my partner, Rachel, at the time we were doing this documentary about the people watching the movie. At the same time, there was a film, a narrative film being made, the remake of The Town That Dreaded Sundown, with two documentary filmmakers watching the movie. So how how self-reflexive can you get? It was it was weird. It was like I was like, either we're either we completely jumped the shark, you know, totally on top of us, or like it's just totally or we're right on the money. Like you don't quite know in the whole, mm-hmm. you know, meta world. But it's very fascinating, um, that whole that whole story. Well, I thought, you know, so that research was great. And plus, like, I, um, when you finally find the truth out about poison candy, you realize, yeah. like, oh, no, my mom was right. You know, because yeah. you grow up and you're thinking, oh, this is all crap, whatever. None of this candy's poison. I'm just, but then you find out the real story behind it. And it's just, I mean, that kind of delving into the truth behind, you know, urban legends and all that stuff we've been talking about since we were kids, uh, it was just really exciting, so I, I, I heartily recommend you guys uh, checking out the Killer Legends, and, and because I think you're going to have a lot of fun if you do. And that one's available, too, I think, everywhere, like Hulu, Netflix. Yeah, the whole deal. I think you can get it, uh, Amazon, Netflix, iTunes, Voodoo, like a whole bunch of different places. And it's just a fun way to explore some, and you're going to hear some stories you hadn't heard before. And plus, it does really bring into, um, if you watch that and listen to our episode on where we talk about clowns, uh, I think you, you, you can become a, uh, a clown expert uh, this year. <laughs> All right, so, you know, after you got into that stuff, and did that kind of, you know, typecast you as the uh, urban legends filmmaker? Or, you know, did you find it now that people were coming up to you with pitches like, hey, you should hear about this legend? Or was there something that, you, you know, had changed, like once you had these, like, really couple successful things? Um, yeah, it was very interesting, like, Surprisingly enough, when I went and pitched it out, it's funny. I don't think sometimes the network executives don't understand about urban legends. They're like, wait a second, but what's the ending? And you're like, there is no end. That's the point. <laughs> you know, um, and then it becomes creepier. So it, it's just very interesting. They're like, wait, there's no ghosts. I'm like, no, there's no ghosts. There's urban legends and the stories and the truth. And, you know, so it was very interesting when I went and pitched the shows around how the, I guess in the cultural zeitgeist, it had been about ghost hunting and not 
story hunting. Right. You know? and this, is a, this is a time when, you know, Ghost Adventures is super popular. Ghost Hunters is in season, you know, 11 or whatever. And so you guys yeah. are going around and saying, okay, now we're doing these, you know, now we're uh, hunting legends. But the thing is, you don't just get an EVP at the end or, uh, you know, an orb or whatever. Like, you're like, well, what happens? Well, what happens is we, we kind of found some truth behind it and some BS behind it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, I think we have a tendency sometimes to want our stories to be wrapped up. You know, we, we want to be satisfied. And, you know, the, that's what I like. I like stories that aren't satisfying because I, I like stories that force us to keep going and, or to realize that it never ends, you know. And so I, I find that very interesting. But, you know, sometimes, especially if you're like kind of an, an some type of executive sometimes they they don't quite understand um it's very hard to put your finger on what makes an urban legend or the delving into the urban legend so fascinating well was there any particular legends that you guys were looking to explore that you were excited about that you didn't get to do and so <laughs> like it's going to be on your uh docket for next time you know or, or next time you're going to explore it or whatever or was there anything that you did investigate and you're like yeah this isn't even worth it uh yeah you know there's there's some i mean there's that, that's a good question. You know, I think at the time Slender Man was coming out, so that was something we were excited to be looking at. I'm excited to be looking at Internet Urban Legends and how the Internet has become the new digital campfire and how that, uh, how that affects us. Um, it's interesting to see how our, what scares us changes, um, has changed over the years. You know, now things that scare us are sometimes in our computer and not outside in the real world you know they're in video games you know things like that um you know there's a lot of urban legends and i think there's some very interesting there's something to be gained from everything as for what the stories are you know there's just so many out there from well it's even interesting how they change you know was the idea of uh you know the stolen kidney real you know was that fake 20 years ago and how is it real now um, and just to, so everybody knows, that's the one where, uh, like, a, I always heard it as um, a guy, like, meets two girls in Las Vegas or whatever, totally and he, yeah. he thinks he's going to have, you know, a wild night or whatever. He's like, oh, come back up to the room. He goes up to the room with them, gets knocked out, like, he doesn't remember anything. He wakes up in a bathtub full of ice, blood all around, a, a sharp pain in his, in his abdomen, and there's a note that says, call 911 immediately. Uh, if you want to live, and when he does, he finds out that one of his kidneys is gone, and so they they duped him into stealing the kidney. Is that is that the right gist of it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. You know, and so you know, the question is, is like the American version of that versus like the real version. Other things like chupacabra, you know, all these other very just interesting, um, you know, um, people in the sewers. You know, or the mole people who live in the tunnels. Like, it's all very interesting. Or the lizard people who live underneath Los Angeles. And, you know. Right, yes. (laughs) Did you, no, when you were uh, talking to different people, and I'm sure you've talked to a a million people about different urban legends, and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you talked about this, or I thought it was my town and everything. You know, has there been anything in particular that they told you a story or a a different twist on the legend that really surprised you? That you're like, oh, I I can't even believe you guys had that. Or there was something totally different or meant something totally different than the one we had. I can't really think if there's anything like that. Um, I mean, just the the most surprising thing to me is is like the sheer power. Well, first of all, the fact that it changes, like even Cropsey, like I'm always just surprised when I go back into the woods in Staten Island to see how that 
urban legend has changed from what it was. And I was like, I can't believe they took this legend. Uh, and then they saw us. It, like now it'll be like, yeah, these two documentary filmmakers are dead. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm still here. <laughs> so, but the kids have managed to like do that. And I was like, oh, really? What happened to them? You know, how did they die? You know. <laughs> well, what's funny is that you mentioned the Blair Witch Project before. And you think that in this day and age, we've all got computers, we can all fact check. I mean, Snopes was still around in 1999 when the Blair Witch Project comes out. And yet I still remember logging on to like my favorite movie site and people there would be talking about uh, this weird video that was found in Maryland. Like, yeah, people found this video and we're just like, they're going to make a movie out of it and they're going to release it. And I don't know if it's going to be in the theaters or on video. I'm not sure. But you guys got to check it out. It's totally freak out, you know, and everybody's reading it and they're commenting on message boards and stuff. And it almost seems like even now that we can talk to any person on the planet whenever we want to, like right now I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. And where am I talking to you? Where are you at today? Uh, I'm in uh, Humboldt County, California. Okay. So we're talking 2,000 miles apart, like instantaneously, even now that we have the power to speak across the continent or across the world. Still, nobody's going to do the research. You know, <laughs> they still read it on an internet forum and they're like, oh, yeah. Like, let me let me tell you what I heard. And so it, it seems like this is part of more of the, um, the human condition. Uh, almost, and it doesn't matter if we have awesome technology or can check urbanlegends.com. I mean, I'm sure we have an 85 year old uncle who everybody has, a, who said something that, you know, this is what this famous person said, and it's obviously crap and not true. And they're like, well, they can just check this on the internet, right? And they don't bother to. So in your <laughs> research, have you, I mean, have you found that we're getting better at detecting BS or nothing has changed even now that we have the entire of human sum of knowledge in our pockets? Uh, it's worse. It's worse because the BS spreads because now we've democratized the stories. So I think there's one thing that's very interesting, interesting, which is the curative process of urban legends, right? If I, if I tell you a story and it's not very good, you're not going to repeat it, right. you know? And if it, if, if it doesn't have the right combination of could it be true, kind of scary, weirdness, like, you know, it all has to... The right urban legend checks the boxes, you know, and, you know, it's scary, feels like it could be real. It's got a couple of mysterious elements. And so those urban legends, if they're getting spread around the campfire, it's typically because they're good. They've lasted, you know. Now, unfortunately, because of, like, say, the digital campfire, everybody could just throw up their urban legend. And it's unfortunate because the we get not a lot of well thought out urban legends versus the ones that are like really, you know, curated, you know, and the ones that last and therefore the ones that create history. So it's a lot of noise. You know, if you look at all like the creepy pasta, everybody's just trying to come up with them versus like, well, give me a couple that like the really good ones and why they're really good and why they blasted. And I think that, I think that's a good point that, and, and you're the guy who's probably, research them more than anybody when you're looking for things to make the movie about and, you know, write a script and something to explore. And mm -hmm. so, you know, after you went into Killer Legends, then um, you guys went on your next thing was the search for the Long Island serial killer. Yeah. And that. I was, <laughs> I, you know, I've never, I was not, you know, not in the Midwest instead of the East Coast. I've never even heard of that before your show. And so mm -hmm. where did you hear about that for the first time? Well, you know, there's a lot of connections between um, 
I think I had heard about it. You know, I was always into, you know, serial killer stories, you know, especially because a lot of the urban legends, you know, the crossover there and, and Cropsey. And I never wanted to do a real serial killer story. Like Cropsey for me wasn't necessarily more of a serial killer story than it was an urban legend story. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yes. But, you know, because of the true crime element, people were always like, oh, you love serial killers. And I'm like, no, I don't really love serial killers. And it's hard to say that, too. You're like, oh, you love serial killers. Like, you're you're not going to be like, thumbs up. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was like, I don't really love serial killers. Like, I'm intrigued by it, you know, but I'm, I like things that ha- that are how stories get told. And I remember it happening. I was like, oh, this is going to be solved. Like, there's no way that, like, a guy could kill 10 sex workers and not get caught in this day and age. And I think that's what a lot of people thought. And then he didn't get caught. And, and so I was like, you know what? Like I didn't want to do a serial killer story, but there was another added element, which is the fact that the police weren't saying anything. And that forced the community to create, to talk about it on their own, on, on social networking and, and, and chat forums. And I saw the crossover with Cropsey there where people were creating their own legends, if you will, their own theories about what had happened. And that was a way for me to explore the idea of creating monsters and creating stories, you know, out of unsolved tragedy or out of mystery. Why do you think the police weren't saying anything? Well, what we find out later is because the police had kind of bungled the case a little bit. Uh, They didn't have the right people on it. Mm. And there was even... There was even, if you watch the show, there was even some very specific reasons why the police didn't say anything about it. You know, some very shocking reasons. So um, I now know why the police weren't saying anything, you know, and that's, it's pretty amazing to me. Like you have a serial killer out killing people um, in like a beach community and the police first commented on it. They kind of bungled it and then refused to talk about it. Well, you can't really talk not talk about an active serial killer case in a community. It was like Jaws. It was like not talking about the shark, you know, like we're not going to tell anybody about the shark, you know, and it, but Brody's like, but it's, it's the tourist season. We have to tell people. And so there was very, a lot of that going on, but it, it ended up being super fascinating and uh, a, a real crazy, crazy story. And I thought it was a, like a fascinating premise and to get into something that a lot of people hadn't heard before, because even though there's like, like an acronym for the LISK, the Long Island Serial Killer, it didn't have the kind of, and first of all, what do you think it is with serial killers and acronyms? <laughs> ah, that's very good. Uh, we like to name things, you know what I'm saying? Uh, we, we need to put a, a name. We always like to put like a catchy name. Um, it's, it's what the press does. The Grim Sleeper, uh, you know, BTK. Uh, so um, as, as in the press, they always like to name a serial killer because then it's catchy and then people talk about it all the time. So um, for lack of a, a, a different type of Grim Sleeper type, you know, BTK, Lisk, you know, um, it's, just, it's just that's just how we name our monsters. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because then it's almost like we have these nicknames for people and then they they become, you know, that adds to the legendary status too because it's not just some 
regular dude. It's not just Bob Jones. Like it was like, right. oh, watch out, Bob Jones is coming. It's like, right. watch out, you know, don't close your eyes because it's the son of Sam's there. You know, it's yeah, totally, totally, totally. We love to name our monsters, you know, and that's a kind of reverse back on the Rumpelstiltskin idea, Ooh. which is, uh, you know, there's a, a guy talks Bill Ellis who you see in some of our pieces. He's a folklorist, and he says, you know, to name something is to own it. And so if we could call it Lisk, or if we call it the Grim Sleeper, we could put a name on it. And that both adds to the terror, but also helps us address the terror. Mm. So you worked on that. And then what's the, uh, when I was looking up your information and stuff, I found the project you're working on right now is something I'd never heard about before. And that's the 52 Hertz whale. Yes, another another mythical animal that's out there in the oceans that I was just very interested in. A little bit of a departure on the on the horror urban legend side, but still another very interesting idea that I, I wanted to take a look at. That movie's almost done, so that's kind of another a search for a lost animal. A little bit more on the cryptozoology side, I guess. Yeah, well, can you get into that a little bit because I'd never even heard of that before. Sure, there's this whale that the U.S. government first heard on these uh, top-secret microphones that we have in our oceans, which we use to listen for things like submarines or underwater volcanoes or earthquakes, uh, very sensitive microphones that are all scattered throughout the ocean. And they first heard the sound. They thought it was a, a submarine. They didn't know. And instead, they, they discovered it was a, uh, a whale that calls out at a frequency that no other whale can technically understand. And this whale has been calling out over 20 years through the oceans, uh, calling out and never once receiving a response. And the whale has, in essence, become a symbol for a lot of people that talk about loneliness or, you know, our kind of loneliness in the digital world and things like that. Like, so even though this whale is in this ocean teeming with life, uh, you know, he's still all alone. That's, that's theoretically the idea, you know, and so kind of do this kind of uh, journey to, to find the 52 hertz well. Now, where did you hear about that for the first time? Was it just like, in, did somebody p- like put an article on Vice or something? Or where would, you know, where would you hear about that for the first time? It, it was an article in the New York Times. Oh, okay. And were, were they dealing it from a scientific perspective or were they dealing it from, from like the kind of urban legend perspective? Uh, well, the New York Times. Yeah. It was in the science section of the New York Times. And I think it was about, a, it was a, a science writer had basically um, found this scientific article that talked about this whale, but it was so interesting was the fact that the people, the scientists were talking about the whale in emotional terms. And so it's the kind of intersection between science and, and emotionality. And so when you were working on the movie and you were, you know, you were doing your search, did you get to like go out in the boat? Did you guys did, did you drop sonar down or I'm, you know, did you look for it? Like you're looking for Nessie or, you know, a little bit. Yes. I don't want to ruin the movie, oh, but yes, we, we, we went on a, we went on a search for the 52 Hertz. Well, well, that sounds like, fun. so when is that one coming out? Uh, hopefully next year we'll have to see, but hopefully soon. And that sounds like fun. And so, uh, what's your next urban legend or is your next project going to be something different? Like now you're going to do like a feel good comedy. Uh, well, you know, the whale's a little bit of a feel good, feel good story. Right, there's no hooks. There's no hooks in it. Yeah. There's a, well, <laughs> you can say, <laughs> um, uh, now I'm probably going to flip back to the dark side a little bit. 
Okay. I was wondering, because a lot of times you, you got to come up with these ideas for stories and you're looking for funding and you're out there pitching and like saying, okay, we're going to make it like this, make it like that. Has there ever been like a kind of legend or, or one of your projects uh, that you pitched to somebody that they uh, either like the reaction was like, that's, that's too morbid or that's too goofy or something like that? Did it, like, I know that a lot of times they'll come back and be like, yeah, but what's the ending? And you're like, well, the ending is it's all a mystery, you know, like you're pitching a David Lynch movie. And, yeah. but have you ever come back when they're just like, nah, we can't, we can't, that's way too dark, man. Yeah, of course, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much most of the answer is that's way too dark. You know, uh, you know, it's just a question of like how dark they're willing to go. A lot of times not very dark in reality, unfortunately. And do you find out in this world of streaming and stuff like that, that there's probably like, there's more opportunities uh, for the work like your kind you're doing like uh, that? Because um, I know like with Chiller, because Killer Legends was really for Chiller, right? Was that the point? Yep. That a horror streaming network. Are you finding that um, there's more chances for you to do cool stuff like this? There definitely is. I'm also, I also try and raise the, raise the bar. So there's, there are opportunities to do cool stuff like this at the same time. Are there opportunities to do really high end things like this? You know, and and it's coming. You know, it's it, it's more and more they are coming. You know, there's a, we're hitting a little saturation in the true crime world, but you know the opportunities are there, thankfully. And you know, just for maybe people who are into this kind of thing, and uh, once they check out your work. Uh, if they haven't had a chance to check out Cropsey or Kill Legends or anything like that, is there anything specific that you'd recommend? You're like, okay, so make sure you check out my... And if you want to go further down the rabbit hole, is there anything that you love watching that you suggest that they check out next? I mean, for me, it's just like... <laughs> I'm a glutton for punishment, so I just watch documentaries about, you know... I, I just love all that stuff, you know. For me, you know, if you really want to get... If you really want to cry... Uh, there's a, a movie called Dear Zachary that's just friggin' heartbreaking. Um, I love that one. Um, you know, I, I, I like a lot of different stuff. Sometimes I don't watch a lot of uh, crime, you know. If, but if you've never seen The Staircase, totally watch The Staircase. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, um, I, I think that's about it, yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, I got to thank you very much, Josh, for your time. We absolutely appreciate it. And if people, uh, besides the, by checking out your work on Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, and all those places, if they want to learn more about you or follow when your latest project is coming out or if you have a newsletter or a blog, where can they find out about you so they can see your next thing? Sure. They can go to Facebook. You know, there's a Killing Season page, and that's the Killing Season. Uh, there's a Cropsy page, and I'm on Twitter, Josh Zeman. So... Uh, and that's J-O-S-H-Z-E-M-A-N. So please come and check us out. All right. You can find that in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time today, Josh. I really enjoyed talking. All right. Thank you so much. Well, I'm definitely going to be keeping my ears open wide to hear any new urban legends around Madison, where we live, because I'm yeah. real curious to see what the stories are around here and maybe what the actual origins of the stories are. Well, and that's right. And that's why uh, Josh's Killer Legends series is really, it really is, is fascinating. And like you said in the interview, it was a pilot for something that was going to go a little farther, but still in the, in that main, uh, the main movie that eventually that was released, you still get four super fascinating urban legends and also killing season um, is pretty cool too. So just make sure you check out that stuff. We're all going to have 
links to Josh's work in the show notes. Yes. Um, where you can check out more of it or just go on Netflix and just grab, you can just look up. Yeah. Or Amazon. Check that out right now. Mm-hmm. And if you know of any exciting urban legends from your area, we'd love to hear about them. So please send us a message. Uh, you can do that on Twitter at Other Side Talk. Or you can send us an email, show at othersidepodcast.com and let us know what your urban legends are because we're always looking for fun, weird stuff like that. Right. And the thing is, if you got a good urban legend, uh, we're going to retweet it. And then what we're going to do also do is we're going to talk about it in the podcast in our next discussion about these kind of things. Because a lot of the stories we talk about on the show are stories that started off with a little bit of truth and then people played a game of telephone until it became some outsized crazy thing. And then that's what we're eventually dealing with and investigating and talking about. And so getting at that original, uh, what really happened, I mean, I think that's the essence of a lot of what we do on the See You On The Other Side podcast. And also, we take some of that truth we find and we filter it through the lens of music. Mm, yes, indeed. I guess the lens of music is a weird thing to put because now we're getting a visual into an auditory. So maybe we, f- we filter it through the headphones. Yeah, the headphones of music is good. The auditory canal <laughs> is good music. It just doesn't have the same ring, though. We filter it through the cilia of music. Uh, um, anyway, so this week, Josh inspired... Uh, this, we think this would be a good soundtrack right before you watch one of his movies to get yourself in a spooky mood. <laughs> Here's a little track we cooked up called Killer Legends.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Last weekend, we had a show at the Hop Garden, and it was really special because we got to see one of our Patreons there, Mike. That's right. Dr. Ned came Ned. down, braved the rain. <laughs> Thanks for stopping out, Ned. And he's just one of many of our wonderful community. They see you on the other side, Patreon community. And you can be a part of it, too. Did you know that? that uh, of course I knew that. I'm, I'm going to tell everybody all about it. You guys should right now go to othersidepodcast.com slash donate. <laughs> so last Wednesday, we all got together, had a, a really fun Patreon hangout. Me, Wendy, we were also joined uh, by our friend Scott Marcus, the guy that helped us put this interview together today yes. from whatsyourghoststory.com. And so uh, we all had to talk about different things. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Scott was telling us about the different uh, the ghost tours and stuff that he was seeing in Florida. We talked about the latest uh, paranormal stuff and movies that we had watched and stories that we'd heard over the week. Yeah. And then some of the stories we talked about ended up making it to the See You on the Other Side newsletter on Friday morning. Ooh. And we also talked about the Ringwood Manor in New Jersey, which we're planning on oh. paying a visit to. And also, um, That's right. we're going to all be watching Veronica so we can talk about it next month. Ah, that's right. So the thing is, watch the movie. We'll all get together and you can have a conversation, an intelligent <laughs> conversation with people of your ilk. If you are listening to the end of this podcast, that means you are a fine, upstanding, very intelligent, paranormal, interesting person. And uh, also you like great music and we appreciate that. <laughs> but the thing is, how many times have you seen a movie you really love or heard a really interesting ghost story or paranormal story and you want to share it with other people and you realize your friends are stupid? Oh, Upgrade your friends. Are they just too normal? See, <laughs> they might be too, too norms. They're too norms. And you can upgrade your friends by joining the See You on the Other Side podcast <laughs> Patreon community. Is really, that's just what we're telling you to do. And you can do that for like a buck a month or even something <laughs> crazy like that. And check that out, othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Oh, that's, that's the farmer.